let's, uh, let's unite our hearts in prayer once again. And just as we do, I'm just going to spend some time praying for some of our church family. Um, some of you will remember a, a while ago, we'd been praying for um, Robbie Cunningham, who had had cancer. Um, and we were praying for a while and we saw, uh, they saw uh, healing there and they were able to remove the tumour. Sadly, this cancer has come back. So I told Rona, his mum, that we would begin again uh, and committing to pray for uh, Robbie and Rona and the family um, during this time. And that the Lord would lay his healing hand upon uh, Robbie, but also that the whole family would just know God's presence, that he is Elroy, that he sees them and he sees exactly what is going on. And as well as, as Robbie, um, Danny uh, Davidson, who had uh, become a member here a while ago, um, um, just a few months ago, uh, should I say, um, he's been going through uh, treatment as well for cancer. So um, let's pray for uh, both Robbie and Danny this morning. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are sovereign and you are in control. And Lord, we often are left with questions about why this and why that. But God, we trust in your goodness. We trust this morning in the one who sees. We trust in the one who knows all things. We trust in the one who is in control. And Lord, we bring Robbie before you just now. We ask that you would lay your healing hand upon him. Father, would you be with him and, and in, in and amongst the treatment that he's going to go through once again? Father, draw close to him, we pray. You are the great physician and there is nothing impossible with you. Lord, we ask once again for a miracle here. Would you lay your healing hand upon Robbie, we pray. Lord, we pray for his family. We pray for them in the midst of distress and uncertainty. Lord, would you be their good shepherd this morning, we pray. And Father, we bring Danny before you as well. We thank you for him. Lord, we, we thank you for the Sundays that he's been able to come along to church when he's not been going through the treatment. Father, we ask that you would lay your healing hand upon Danny also. Lord, from both of these men, we ask that you would rid them of cancer. Father, draw close to Danny's wife, Helen, and their family as well, we pray. Be with them and watch over them. Lord, would you lay your healing hand on Danny and on Robbie. Lord, there are so many people in our congregation who are hurting, who are ill, who are tired. Thank you that you are Elroy. And Lord, even where I fail as a pastor, you never fail as the good shepherd. Lord, for the things that I miss, Lord, for the things that I forget, Lord, I thank you that we have a great high priest in Jesus who is forever interceding on behalf of his people. Lord, you see everything that goes on in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you love us the same. 
Lord, in the silence, we bring before you those who we know that need prayer. Lord, whatever situation that came to our minds and our hearts there, Lord, we ask that you would be in the midst of it. Lord, I thank you that you see it. Would we know that you are El Elyon, you're the name above our situations, and that you're the mighty one. We can depend and trust in you, for we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. We have been going through, as the boys and girls said, um, we've been going through our sermon series about the names of God. And this morning, we're looking at Elroy, which is the, the God who sees, or the God who sees me, as we will see uh, Hagar uh, say in our Bible reading this morning. And we've been spending a lot of time in Genesis, because these are the first times that these names are used. But what's different about Elroy is that this is the only time that it's used in Scripture. It's not used anywhere else. And we will speak about that in a bit more depth later on. But um, the first time that we meet Abram is back in Genesis 11. And we read that his wife Sarai is barren, that she can't have children. And we see God call Abram in Genesis 12 and, and say, look, I, I want you to leave your homeland and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I will bless you and I will make of you a great nation and um, God points to really what seems impossible because with Sarah being barren how can he have descendants but God speaks to that and says I will give you offspring uh, as well so a lot of time has passed uh, between the call and the passage in Genesis 16 that we're going to read together this morning and um, they've left their hometown they've gone through Egypt and Abraham's messed up and then uh, Lot and Abram have, have split up and they've gone their separate ways to look after their, their sheep and their livestock uh, and then Abraham has rescued uh, Lot and then Abraham uh, encounters Melchizedek that uh, interesting figure we thought about last week and then in Genesis 15 God establishes this covenant with Abraham and, and specifically says to Abraham that you are going to have uh, a son don't worry about this problem of ha no, not having a, an heir for your inheritance now I'm going to give you a son and I will bless you and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and we read that Abraham believed it and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because Abraham put his faith in what God had said that has just happened in Genesis 15 and now we read in Genesis 16 please hold on to that that God has just specifically and literally said to Abraham I'm going to give you a son Okay, so hold on to that as we read Genesis 16. We'll read the whole chapter together. The words will appear on the screen before you. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram uh, had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she had saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that uh, she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered or, or, or for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord had listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. I wonder if we have any Ronan Keatings fans in church this morning. I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourself by putting your hand up, because only I would be embarrassed because I do like Ronan Keatings myself. But you could sum up Abraham's life really by the title of one of Ronan Keatings' songs. Life is a roller coaster. The highs and the lows. Man, Abraham had some really, really good high points. But then we just see the next day, the next stage, he just plummets. He goes from being called by God to go into this land. And then in Egypt, he, he fears and he lies and he pretends that Sarah's not his wife, but his sister so that uh, they didn't get killed. And then and we see here, God has just established this covenant, this high moment. He's promised a son. And then in Genesis 16, we have this other low moment. I wonder if you are good at waiting. Are you good at waiting? I was going to ask this morning, have you ever been frustrated about wanting to do something that's been postponed to a later date? And then I thought, well, we've been through COVID for the last two years. And if we've not been frustrated by that, then we probably have the patience of a saint. Each one of us will have known some sort of frustration for something that we want to do in the last couple of years that just hasn't happened when we wanted it to happen. Am I right on the money there? Yeah, yeah, I'm not alone. Good. Well, this is what we see with Sarai and Abram. They were promised this promise. They entered into a season of waiting, and their waiting led to frustration. Their waiting led to frustration. Now, they weren't waiting right. They weren't waiting well. How do I know that? Well, what does waiting produce when it's done in the right way? There's a song that we love to sing. It comes from Isaiah. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. But actually what we see here is what rises when they're waiting is frustration. So they aren't waiting in the Lord. They're actually waiting in and of themselves. And that is where the problem lies with what is happening here. What we see, they're, they're, they're trusting in the wrong stuff. 
They're trusting in the wrong person. They aren't waiting upon the Lord because if they were, then their strength would have risen. But what rises for them is frustration. God's timing is not our timing. And I know sometimes we think that we know best, but we really don't. We really don't. His timing is perfect. And that is what is at the heart of this story. It's a battle between God's people and this issue of timing and promise. They couldn't wait. They didn't wait. And because of that, well, we'll see what unfolds. Difficulty, not just for their life, but actually for thousands of years after as well. If we, as we've seen over the last few weeks, we believe that God is Elohim and we believe that he is El Elyon, if he is mighty creator and he is God most high and we believe that, then actually our belief needs to be seen in how we live our life. Like I said, I don't want this just to be information for us. Actually, what we read in Corinthians is that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So as we learn these things, let it transform how we live and how we act, how we speak, even how we pray. I'm not surprised that one of the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of patience. Because we are so bad at waiting. We get so impatient. And what we see here with Sarai and Abraham is actually their impatience leads them to sin. It leads them to reject God's plan and God's ways and God's word and to live their life in and of their own strength. We read that the frustration that is caused leads Sarah to offer Abram her servant. And what we see here is actually, it's really well done within the, the original languages. It's a play on words, and it should remind us when we read it in the original language of the sin of the Garden of Eden, where Eve... Um, um, kind of misled, misguided uh, Adam when, she, when he, she offered him the fruit. It's the same kind of thing here where we read that Adam listened to Eve, Abraham listened to Sarai. So this listened to or agreed to points to misguided compliance that actually he put his trust in the wrong person. He stopped trusting God in this moment and started trusting a human being. And we'll leave it as generic as that because I don't want to get in trouble. Now the first words in their passage this morning points to the issue and the problem. That she hadn't borne him a child yet. She was still barren. She hadn't conceived yet. Verse 1 of 16. Now this tells us that actually we see something in this where we, we kind of understand that Abraham and Sarah had this conception, this understanding that actually God was going to do this through Sarah. Because they were waiting for her to have the child. So it actually makes things a bit worse. Because they, they understand what should be at play here. They understand that this should be Sarah that's doing this. But she's still not given Abraham that child. That offspring in and off that moment. And look at who is to blame. Verse 2. She said, behold now the Lord has prevented me prevented me. They're blaming God for this situation. God still hasn't done what he said he's going to do. He's still preventing me from giving you children, Abram. 
So what do they do? Well, she offers a natural, she offers an earthly solution to what really should have been a heavenly or a supernatural solution. They replace what God had planned in the supernatural and implemented a natural plan, which should never have been the way because they're now playing God. They're taking things into their own hands. So she offers her servant. And, and really, it's important for us to know that in that day, a remedy for childlessness was that you would offer your, a servant to your husband as a concubine. So this is really what's going on here. They are offering a, an earthly or a natural remedy to what God had wanted to do. And boy, did they mess up. This was never part of God's plan for Abraham to sleep with a concubine because we see within the Genesis narrative that it's one man and one woman. So they're just going against God in all accounts here. They're playing God. They're trying to be God. And they mess up. And actually, what transpires is that they would then have to wait another 15 years after this for the fulfillment of God's initial promise of a son. 25 years, I think it was, in total, they had to wait. They'd waited 10 years up until this point, but they then have to go and wait another 15 years. And Hagar falls pregnant. And, and God tells Hagar through this discourse that we're going to look at, you're going to have a son and you're call him Ishmael. Now, who was Ishmael? What does the Bible say about Ishmael? Well, we read that he was Abraham's son uh, that he had with Hagar. Uh, and we read that, that God, we read that in our verses this morning, that God told in verse uh, 12 um, that he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. That this son that she would bear would be just at tension and at odds with everyone he would come against. But he would have lots of descendants as well. And it's worth noting that this metaphor for wild as a donkey, when it's used elsewhere in scripture, it is pointing to um, someone who is living against or, or being stubborn towards or defying God's covenant. When this metaphor is used as wild as a donkey, it's pointing to those that are living against or being stubborn or defying God's covenant. And we even see that within this because Abraham and Sarah, they've just defied God's covenant. They've gone against the covenant promise that God had offered them and they've taken it into their own hands. Now, it's, we see later on in Second Samuel that an Ishmaelite, a descendant of Ishmael, would be serving uh, uh, Absalom, who was King David's enemy. We see an Ishmaelite, one of the descendants of Ishmael, would take Joseph once his brothers had sold him into slavery and take him into Egypt. So we see this constant, constant tension against God's covenant and God's people from the descendants of Ishmael. That's exactly what God said. His hand against everyone. Now make of it what you want, but, um, and I think it's important to mention because some of you might already have heard this kind of thing before, but uh, within Islam, Ishmael is one of their highest names. He is seen as a prophet. They, 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 they kind of give him and hold him in, in high regard. And one of the things that we've seen maybe not in our country, but elsewhere around the world, is that Islam has been one of the biggest enemies of the church. 
leading to the point of death for hundreds of thousands of God's followers. Ishmael even brought tension, though, into his own home. We see that in Genesis 21, where Abraham is told by God and Sarah to send, eventually to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Send them out. Because we read that Ishmael, who had been about 16 years old at this age, was, was, was laughing. And that sounds really harsh, but actually what the laughing signifies is he was laughing with malice intent. He meant evil to become of what was going to happen. It was a wicked laugh that is recorded in Genesis 21. But I love that even in the midst of all of that and all of the mess, God still remembers his promise to Hagar. Whether we think she deserves it or not, or it should have happened or not, God is always true to his word. She had a son, he was called Ishmael, and he had many descendants. And little did Abraham and Sarah know that their quick fix solution, their shortcut to try and get to where God was leading them, would lead to thousands of years of bloodshed. All because they didn't wait on the Lord. Now we might say that, that well, that's, that's, a, that's a big kind of, uh, um, kind of a, a grand way of that happening. You know, when I do it, it's just this and that and this and that. The principle is the same though, friends. When we don't wait upon the Lord, it leads to frustration and ultimately it will lead us into sin. But when we wait upon the Lord, strength will rise. Who and what are you waiting on this morning? What promises are you praying into? What is it that you're holding on to? Let me encourage you. Let that be God. Hold on to him and wait upon him. So Hagar falls pregnant really because of Abraham and Sarah's misguided trust. They put their trust in themselves and not in the Lord. They try to fix a solution, an earthly solution that only God could fix because ultimately Sarah was still barren. So even what they did didn't fix the problem. It was a quick fix. It didn't fix the actual, the, the actual issue, which was that Sarah was barren. Only God could fix that. Only God could do that. And then it leads Sarah to deal horribly and really harshly with Hagar. And you could say with poor Hagar. And she runs away in fear of her life, effectively. And we read in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the, uh, on the way to Shur. This angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Finds her. Now, note the difference. It doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. In other places in the Old Testament, it will say an angel of the Lord. But on numerous times, I think it's, I don't, I'm not even going to try and remember how many it is. But there are numerous occasions we read of this person, this character in scripture, the angel of the Lord. So who is this? 
Well, we see from Hagar's um, conversation with the angel of the Lord is that she is speaking as if she's speaking to God himself. In other places, when we read of the angel of the Lord, um, people are... um, uh, people offer worship, they, they bow down, they, they, they act as though it, it's more than just a, 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 an angel or a, a mighty person, but actually it's God that they're dealing with themselves. And that's exactly who I believe the angel of the Lord is, is what we call in theology a theophany, a visible appearance of God himself. This is God that she's speaking to and God finds her. God doesn't send someone to go find Hagar, but God goes looking for Hagar himself. And he finds her by this well. I love this verse, verse 7. Where did the Lord find you, friends? Where is your well near sure? Maybe you're thinking, well, I've never been found by God. Well, if that's the case then I pray it's on this date in Sandy Hills Parish Church is your answer to that question. But where did the Lord find you? Maybe you've been reminded of the first time you ever remember the presence of God near you. Was it at a, a Billy Graham crusade that the Lord found you? Was it in your kitchen at your breakfast table? Was it in church on a Sunday morning? Where did the Lord find you? And as God speaks to Hagar, he tells her that you're going to have this son. And he, 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 what, Hagar, what God is doing here he is he's, he's basically showing Hagar that, that I've been watching everything that's happened. And that's what Hagar's response is in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I've seen him who looks after me. You are a God of seeing. You are El Roy. Her literal words are, you are a God of sight. You're a God of sight. You've seen what's been happening. You've been watching over me. In Hagar's abuse, in Hagar's abandonment, In her loneliness, God meets her. She encounters God because he finds her where she is. And he shows her that he knew her because he knows what was going on. He knew that she was pregnant. And and actually, friends, this morning you might might go, actually, I, I feel a bit like Hagar. I feel like people have misused me or, or abused me or, or looked over me or mistreated me. Well, if that's the case, friends, he is still Elroy today. He is still a God of sight. He still sees your heart. He sees what's going on. He sees your situations. He sees what's happening. And in this moment, we... What, we, what re- reminded me of is the father and the prodigal son who's standing and looking, searching and spots his son in the distance and runs to meet him where he is. If you're found, if you're saved this morning, if you say that I'm a Christian, that you have been found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You've been found. You're no longer lost. 
And this is such an important aspect in theology. We need to understand that our God is the one who finds. He's the one who finds. And how does he find? Because he's the one who sees. He's the one who goes searching. He's the one who looks for. He's the one that he, who goes after those who are lost, those who are in need, those who are perishing, those that are stuck, those that are being mistreated. He goes after and he sees exactly what's happening in your life. He's the God who finds because he's the God who searches. And he sees what's going on. El Roy, like I said, is is not used again in scripture as a name. But it's 100% over most of the pages of scripture in our Bible. Where we see that the truth of this name unfold as we learn about who this God is. Who the God of the Bible is. That he's the God who sees and who searches. Where God continues to see those that the world overlooks, the marginalized, the oppressed, the widowed, the orphan, the leper, the lame, the blessed, the, the, the deaf, the blind, those that, that are in need, those that are lost, those that are stuck in the, in the grasps of sin. And he's the God who sees. Jesus teaches on this on numerous occasions in Luke's gospel the, the lost coin, the, the, the lost sheep, like I said, the, the lost son or the prodigal son. And what's happening in each of those parables? Something is found because someone was looking. If you're in Christ this morning, you're only there because he is El Roy. And he saw you in your sin, he saw you in your mess. And as the prodigal son parable unfolds, we read that as the son was making his way back, actually the father is already looking. Because we read these words that he saw him and had compassion. Had compassion. Often God's sight is linked with his compassion. It's the same when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He comes off the boat and sees this great crowd and he, he, he looks he sees them and they're, they're, like a, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. Thank the Lord that when he saw us in our sin, he had compassion on us. If there wasn't any searching, there wouldn't be any finding. What does Jesus say? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. To be found by his searching grace that calls to us in our lostness, in our sinfulness. Friends, in his sovereignty, he watches over us. El Roy, the God of sight, the God who sees me. Joel started a new um, football level this, uh, this week. Maybe he's told you that he's been promoted. It's the new word that he's using when he's talking to people. So he's been asked to go up a wee level within his football but actually, he was quite anxious about going to it because he was so familiar with all the wee boys and girls that went to his, uh, the, the level he went to in a, a quarter past four on a Friday. Um, and actually, he had to go to the bigger class and he would be one of the youngest in it. And, and understandably, he was a bit nervous, a bit scared. So he, he asked if I would stay with him. And, and, and just watch him that week because it's now a class where the parents drop the child off and then um, the parents go and the, the, the young people stay by themselves. 
But he asked if I would stay with him. Now, I could have gone because he didn't look at me once. He was too busy having fun and messing around and making friends and, and kicking the ball. But actually for Joel, it wasn't about knowing he could see me. It was knowing that I was watching over him. Friends, sometimes in life, the dark clouds come and we go, God, where are you? I can't see you in the midst of everything I'm going through. But nothing can hinder his gaze. And to know that he's still watching over us, even when we feel like he might not be, he is because he's the God of sight. And it's so reassuring to know that he sees us. And just as we look to close this morning, God knew everything that had happened to Hagar, but he also knew everything that was going to happen to Hagar. Because he tells her you're going to have this son and he, he, he tells her what's going, to, what's going to happen with her son. And, and, and we see that, that the barriers of time are not a hindrance to the sight of our God. But friends, neither is our mess a hindrance to his sight. Hagar's life was in a mess. Not caused by her, caused by others, but her life was in a mess. It is so good to know that the storms of life cannot hinder the gaze of God. We see that when the disciples are out on the boat. It's one of the first, it was the sermon I think I preached here as sole nominee. When the disciples are out on their boat and they're in the midst of the storm and, and they can't see anything that's going on. But we read that Jesus had gone up a mountain and he could see them. The storms of life. Don't hinder God's sight. But what I find amazing, and like I said, with this we close. Hagar's declaration is just incredible. The tail end of it. She says, you're a God of seeing. Then she says in verse 13, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Again, we see the personal nature of our God. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me. And you seek me with all of your heart. Our rescuer, the one who sought us and found us, allows us to find him. It's incredible. All because of what Jesus has done. The one this world overlooks. The one this world overlooks so much. The one even sometimes the church overlooks. Is thankfully the one who oversees. We might ignore him at times. We might not feel him at times. But his eyes are fastened and fixed on this world that he loves, that he created and that he shed his blood for. And he gave his life to save. He is, as Peter says, the overseer of our souls. He's the God of sight. Friends, I look at you. But I can't see what's going on in your life. Sometimes I wish I could. Sometimes you're glad I can't. But God 
sees. He sees what's going on. He sees the tears you shed. He sees what keeps you awake at night. He sees the things that burden you down. He sees the things that, 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 that just make you tremble. And also Peter says that we're to cast our burdens upon the Lord because he cares for us in his vision. We find his provision. He is the one who will never let us go. He is El Roy, the God who sees me. And do you know what just blows my mind? Is that he still loves me. That he still calls me his child. That even though he could see everything I would do and all the mistakes I make. Because contrary to some of, you, some of the thoughts that you think, guys, I do get things wrong sometimes. I'm not perfect. But his love is perfect. And he could see everything I would do. He could see everything that you would do. He knows the mistakes you're going to make. And he still sent his son to the cross of Calvary for your sins. So that you could be called a child of God. He is the overseer of our souls. He's the God who sees. But have you seen him? Because Hagar did. Have you seen him this morning? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that you're the overseer of our souls. That you're Elroy, the God of sight. That you see us and you search for us and you seek us in our mess and in our sin and in our brokenness. And in our, Lord, in our abandonment and our loneliness. Everything that goes wrong in this life, Lord, you see it and you see where we are. You see the storms that surround us. You know what's going on. And God, you're searching for us this morning. You're looking for us. You're looking over us. And you're looking at us. But God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, would you let the scales fall from our eyes? And would we have the same revelation and testimony as Hagar? Would we see the one who sees us? For we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.